In this episode, some good boys plant a tree, Sir Ian McKellen reads Noah a bedtime story, and what's that, Lassie? Rob fell down a well? Welcome to Fax Machine. I'm Emily, and I'm here with my co-hosts Rob, Heyo. and Noah. Hi there. And we're gathered around the mic to share some facts about peachy pooches, fine canines, super-duper puppers, and all-around good boys <laughs> and girls. That's right. This week, we're talking about dogs. So the three of us will take turns presenting and discussing each of our dog facts, and then we'll wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. And... As some of you may have attended, and I hope you did, we had a live show last night, and we're recording this before then, but I assume it was awesome, and everyone had a great time, and you're going to remember it and talk to your friends about it forever, right? It was so great. There were so many people there. I'm I'm probably so hungover right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, this episode uh, is being released at midnight, so that that Tuesday, that would be like an hour or so after our live show ended. So hopefully, you're listening to this because you had such a great time at our live show that you immediately went home and listened to our new episode. Yeah, exactly. All right. So without further ado, uh, Rob, what have you got for us? So this week I learned that one way to reseed land after forest fires is by playing fetch with your pets. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Didn't know that, did you? Did not. Yeah. So obviously Didn't realize I was such an ecologically friendly dog owner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice work, Noah. <laughs> I don't own a dog. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, the greatest shame of my life. I know. City life. Uh, but what I found this week is that in the nation of Chile in 2017, there were devastating forest fires, like really massive. Um to, to give you some context, uh, 1.25 million acres of land burned, thousands of people were displaced, over 1,000 buildings were lost, uh, and there were 11 confirmed dead in this 2017 fire. So in terms of human life and economic damage, this fire was very similar to a 2014 fire called the Great Fire of Valparaiso. However, in terms of acreage, uh, it left a footprint that is 1,000 times bigger. Wow. Um, so wow. way, way more acreage burned and destroyed. So damaged towns and cities tried to rebuild, uh, but environmentalists were faced with this other huge challenge. How can humans restore some of that ecosystem lost in that massive conflagration? Uh, So one solution, and easily the best in my opinion, was border collies. Duh. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So border collies are work dogs, um, despite being very, very cute. Uh, They're disciplined. They're thorough. They're often used for herding and and other kind of work-related functions. Um, And collies, as you may know, love to run. So it was a natural pairing to have them run through the charred woods, planting seeds to make new trees. This is where we um, begin to talk about Francisca Torres. So she is a dog trainer, and she equipped all of her dogs um, with a special seed pouch that was designed in a way... How many dogs were you talking? So, unfortunately, only three. Okay, um, you got to start somewhere. Three adorable right. border collies. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, in my head when I started reading this, I also thought it was like an army of border collies. <laughs> that's like, what I was picturing as well, and I wanted to have that confirmed, but that's all right. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> I wish just like coming over the hillside, you just see like one or two, and then it's like, I don't know, like the wildebeest and the Lion King, just border collies. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
but but alas a golden stampede i was uh, yeah i was imagining like ride of the valkyries (laughs) 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 sploot true story But so, Francesca's three dogs were all equipped with a seed pouch, which means that as the dogs run around, seeds would be slowly dispersed into the grounds around them. Um, The dogs have incredible endurance, so they can run for approximately 18 miles a day. Wow. Is that that a lot for dogs? Do we know? So, I don't have any real good reference point for that. It's considerably more than most humans would run around in the burnt woods. Right. Um, So, that's my point of reference. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You're right. That is far. Yeah. Um, and then the thing that's great about it is they'll run as far as they want to. They'll explore and they always come back to Francesca whenever they get hungry. And so they'll come back for a treat and they'll go run away again. You know, what would really be not great for this plan if they developed a taste for seeds. <laughs> <laughs> no one tell those dogs how rich in vitamins those seeds are. Yeah. <laughs> so, so these three dogs, um, they got a lot of attention in the summer of 2017. So a few months after the wildfire, uh, Francisca took them out into the woods and began doing this, and it, it got attention in a couple of ecological uh, journals and magazines, and it made the news circuit. It got onto like every Facebook feed for a little while. Everyone was like, "Oh my god, these adorable dogs!" Um, who, by the way, I haven't said yet. Their names are Olivia, Das, and Summer. <laughs> just just <laughs> makes cute. it. That's so cute. Here's Summer. Um, but so these dogs had a lot of news coverage, and then. I couldn't find anything. So the, the original story interviewed Francisca and her sister and the dog. The, didn't interview the dogs. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it referred to them. How, how, is it easy to go spreading seeds in the forest? <laughs> it's pretty rough. Yeah. <laughs> the trees that grow back are covered in bark. <laughs> but so. Uh, <laughs> digging real deep for these. <laughs> But so I tried really hard to find an update on on this effort. Um, and nothing besides that original interview is anywhere. All the more recent news stories are just citing back to the original interview. Um, she's not published really anywhere. Um, her, her actual job is uh, she trains the dogs for being like therapy dogs. Um, so mm. they, they work with people most of the time anyway. That's why they're very well trained and why she had them kind of like ready to go and work. But weirdly, like I have no idea if this was considered good or not, if this continued... Uh, what I can say is that in the U.S., though, um, when we have large fires, millions of dollars are spent post-fire in, in order to reseed. And the idea is that um, reseeding encourages rapid growth, um, and this can box out invasive or non-native plants, reduce the chances of erosion, while the forest kind of gets back on its feet. So this is way cheaper than having humans do it, which is what we do in the U.S., humans, and we have machines, and sometimes, uh, you know, no, it's either humans or machines, but... <laughs> Yeah, but don't don't humans have airplanes? Like, can't we just dump seed over a whole region? I guess we could. I, I didn't see anything about like airplane delivery of seeds. It's usually kind of more like um, like dispersion through like a little tractor or a uh-huh. little seed spreader that's that's done by hand or by like a mode device. Um, and the interesting thing is also while the U.S. is spending millions of dollars on this, some scientists don't think the intentional seeding is all that great. Um, so many of them think that since burns are a natural part of forest ecosystem cycles, um, it allows certain species to move in afterwards that otherwise wouldn't have the chance Mm. to take root in a forest that's already well established. So, um, while they might not be, well, it does invite invasive species. It also allows some native species, um, to get a foothold, um, before they get choked out by the kind of more 
big forest trees. But these scientists, while they're very smart, they clearly haven't watched any of the videos of Summer, Das, and Olivia running around looking adorable as fuck. Just they, like they decide that it's worth it. Yeah, because they just be like, oh, what? like okay, I'm just gonna show you guys here. Look at this dog. Yeah. Oh. It's just like there, got seeds. Oh, it's just like I'm helping. As you can see clearly in Figure One. This, this is just a picture is of a dog. My evidence. But yeah, so presumably she's still doing this. Um, Though much of the land from the burn will have, will have grown back in many stages by now. Um, after a few months, the dogs are actually credited with increasing the rate of regrowth. Uh, but a bigger group exists called Reforest Patagonia. Um, and that's a group who is in, their intention is to kind of help the forests of Patagonia regrow after fires or after any kind of deforestation events. And their website doesn't mention dogs at all. So this effort seems to be a really like one-off Chilean um, effort by one person. And it got so much media attention, like millions and millions of reads, but it never really seems to have caught on. So dog reseeding is not a very popular thing. It's a somewhat contentious thing among the scientific community. And even other um, efforts in Patagonia haven't picked it up yet. But nonetheless, it's a truly heartwarming tale. Yes. Absolutely. Indeed. Just really quickly, I wanted to get in on the talk about border collies. So who would you say the most famous border collie is? Lassie? Lassie. That's right. And... (laughs) Just about Lassie. What was she famous for doing? Oh, speaking English. Yeah, well, no, she, she definitely. Yeah, she. Well, I think I think it's probably fair to say that her owners could understand Lassie dog language because mm. she would just bark at them. And, and what they is would, it, girl? <laughs> There's that? a fire in the barn down the road. There's three children. Inside. <laughs> well, what's funny? What's, Their ages are three, six, and eleven, respectively. <laughs> well, what's funny is, does anybody know like what the thing that's like in the zeitgeist is? What Lassie was saying. And they're always like, what's that? What happened to Timmy? It fell down a well. Right? Okay, yeah. It's falling down a well. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so everybody always quotes this. is like, what's that girl? Timmy? He's falling down a well? But Timmy never falls down a well in the entire show. Really? He what? He fell uh, into two lakes, <laughs> a gap between two railroad cars, a couple of abandoned mines, quicksand, and a badger hole. But not one time does Timmy fall into a well. In fairness, well and badger hole and barking sound very similar. (laughs) That's true. It's just a dialectical thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, However, though, Lassie falls into a well in a season 17 two-parter for the love of Lassie and has to be saved by the family. So... Was that Timmy? Lassie fell into a well? Yeah. Oh, wow. He's just been flipped this whole time. I have been telling you in English that the dog. <laughs> What's it, that boy? Lassie <laughs> fell into a badger hole. <laughs> That's not what I said, Dad. <laughs> Takes them two goddamn episodes, and they have humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lassie always did it in one. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so I looked a little bit into other animals that help with uh, sort of reforestation and restoring biodiversity after natural disasters. And the animal that I encounter that I want to talk about today is, in my opinion, uh, the greatest of all time, or the goat, because it's, <laughs> oh <boy>. <laughs> <laughs> it's goats. It's goats. It's goats. It's always goats. Yeah. So... They're great at a lot of things, including eating, uh, specifically poisonous plants that would make other animals sick, uh, and also can pose a danger to other animals and humans, so like poison ivy and stuff like that. Um, And they're also really good at climbing on top of stuff and jumping around so they can access hilly terrain um, that's difficult for people to get to with a weed whacker and stuff like that to clear undergrowth. And I think we've already established that they are excellent at producing spider silk in their milk. Yes, they (laughs) are. Wow, that was a long time ago. Throwback. Throwback. (laughs) I can't. 
So I should say, as a consequence of uh, these abilities they have, there have been a lot of recent initiatives to put goats to the task of lawn care in public parks. Uh, one of these recently was actually in Prospect Park over in Brooklyn. Uh, so this was after Hurricane Sandy when a lot of trees were felled and basically all the decaying logs uh, created an environment that was conducive to the growth of invasive ground-covering weeds, which then wouldn't allow the regrowth of normal plants because they would suck up all the nutrients and block the sun from getting down there. Um, so in order to restore biodiversity, they basically cordoned off a portion of the park and just set loose a bunch of goats and were like, yeah. go, eat all this up, <laughs> <laughs> clear it out, and then and then we can you know regrow things. And that was in and Brooklyn? That's... No. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker, right? But yeah, that's exactly what they did. Um, and I will say too that if you're interested in hiring goats for your own lawn care at home, uh, there is a burgeoning sector of businesses that provide exactly this service. Uh, my favorite one that I found- Are they, are they goat owned and operated? <laughs> little goats in like any. suits and ties who will <laughs> come around with a van full of humans <laughs> this is like the whole lassie boy situation flipped all over again but my favorite one that i encountered goats. <laughs> but my favorite one that i encountered uh provides services in california so they call themselves rent a goat um and they must have been early adopters to secure a name like that like even their url is rentagoat.com so mm. nicely done uh but their slogan promises in quotes cost effective eco-friendly and super cute weed removal Aww. which what else could you want you know <laughs> Seems subjective, but I buy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what they're betting on. <laughs> this week I learned that the earliest known named dog was called a beautyu, which according to Egyptologists either means with pointed ears or woof. <laughs> <laughs> So okay. is that what woof means? <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's it's complicated. Basically, a beautyu was an Egyptian dog who lived around 2280 BCE, and his name is variously translated as either, as I've said, with pointed ears, which makes sense because he would have looked similar to a greyhound, people think. Um, the specific word that was used to uh, describe his breed. It, at, like, it's basically an Egyptian word for dog that you could just say, and it meant dog, but it also implied a breed. And it was like sim or something like that. I think in English it's sort of written T-E-S-E-M, but in the glyphs it's sort of represented as like a T-S-M sort of thing. And that implied uh, a breed that was very similar to a greyhound. So they knew it would have had pointed ears. The other reason we know that is because there is a picture of him, uh, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later, but it, he had pointy ears and a very curly tail. Oh, cool. And by very picture, cool. I mean like hieroglyphic painting sort of style thing. <laughs> Obviously, this was a long, long time ago. They, they found was an he, undeveloped roll of film. In the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was buried along with the other ceremonial objects that yeah. would accompany him to the afterlife. He was a lover of photography. Um, so the other uh, translation of his name, basically meaning like woof, um, was because the first part of his name, Abu, or Abu, uh, is a component of many other ancient Egyptian dog names. And it's assumed this was sort of like a like a prefix, onomatopoeic representation of this particular breed's sound, that, of the bark that they made. Hmm. Um, so he is, he's thought to have been a royal guard dog. Uh, and interestingly, while we know Abu to use name, we don't know the name of the pharaoh who owned him. So the question is, like, how do we know about a beauty at all? Well, it turns out he was a very good boy. <laughs> um, and he, of course. <laughs> he was honored with an elaborate funeral and a burial in the Giza necropolis, so like just off the like Pyramid of Giza, which was uh, an honor that was usually reserved only for upper class human Egyptians of the era. And the ceremonial nature of his 
burial is consistent with the ancient Egyptian belief that the ka, or basically the soul, would enter the afterlife by virtue of such a burial, which in turn is consistent with my belief that all dogs go to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) So in this burial site, there is this depiction of a beauty out for a walk with his owner, and the accompanying inscription reads... The dog which was the guard of his majesty, a beautiu is his name, his majesty ordered that he be buried ceremonially and that he be given a coffin from the royal treasury, fine linen in great quantity and incense. His majesty also gave perfumed ointment and ordered that a tomb be built for him. His majesty did this for him in order that he, the dog, might be honored before the great god Anubis. That's pretty cool. Wow. wow. Yeah. And it probably doesn't come as a shock to anyone that people had, you know, really profound emotional connections with dogs on par with even humans, even back then. And a beauty certainly is not the earliest example. That distinction belongs to the Bon Oberkäsel dog, which was discovered in Germany and dates to about 14,500 years ago. Wow. The remains wow. of this dog were discovered buried with two humans, and it is believed that it had been sick for a while with uh, some, like a viral infection called canine distemper. Um, and with this illness, it would not have been able to survive for nearly as long as it did without intensive human care. And it would have been no use to humans in such a state. But paleoanthropologists believe that it was tended to and kept alive for a considerable amount of time before it eventually died and was buried ritualistically along with humans, suggesting that there existed emotional ties between these humans and this dog. But the Bon Oberkäsel dog isn't just the first evidence of a human-canine bond beyond something like a mutually beneficial hunting relationship. It's also the earliest confirmed remains of a genetically modern dog. So as far back as we have any evidence, there are signs that humans have cared deeply for dogs as companions and important members of the social group. That's wild. That's just so cool. Like the, the the oldest human burial sites are probably like what like the oldest one would be a hundred thousand years ago. Yeah, and this one fourteen thousand years ago, yeah. and they they buried a dog. And it's crazy. And actually, so there is so this is the oldest confirmed you know genetically modern dog where they can say for sure this is not a wolf, some sort of weird wolf dog hybrid. This is a dog as maybe not exactly looking as we would know it, but genetically this is a dog with all the distinctive markers a dog would have wow. compared to you know other similar species. But there is actually another uh, sample from, I think, about like 30 to 35,000 years ago um, that is, is sort of debated. But it, obviously, I mean, this is going back a really, really long way. And I think around 15,000 years ago is sort of the accepted right now interpretation for when the earliest dogs would have been domesticated. But it's like a very active area of research um, so we're not really sure, but it, it goes back like to the very beginning of sort of human society is this partnership with dogs in a really amazing way. We, I mean, people even think that dogs and humans have convergent evolution, that there are a lot of things that are similar about dogs and humans because they have cohabitated. They've been, you know, uh, basically subjected to the exact same sort of environmental the same sort of environmental selection. Um, So for example, there are really interesting similarities between like the serotonin system uh, in the brains of dogs and humans. Um, For example, over many, many years of having to live in sort of like cities or like, you know, sort of new uh, societies that humans and dogs sort of went into together um, in cramped quarters, they reduced the tendency of humans and dogs in a very similar way to uh, respond aggressively in cramped quarters. Wow. Um, there's just a bunch of other similarities that like couldn't be there if there weren't some sort of convergent evolution going on. Like the way we cock our heads to the side and we're confused. Exactly. There but there's also uh, there's also an <laughs> in interesting the there's also an interesting thing about how uh, wolves in uh, in contrast to a lot of other animals have really strong same sex sort of bonds that look very much like friendship, and that those kind of bonds, while probably also present in humans before domestication, would have uh, strengthened. 
um, because in sort of living with these animals so closely, those kind of social bonds, uh, in those sort of intraspecies social bonds would have reinforced the interspecies social bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of may have like enhanced the human notion of friendship and companionship that can expand even beyond just sort of human to human. Wow. That's really cool. Um, but probably my favorite example of the human dog relationship from the ancient world comes from the Odyssey. Now, I might be slightly biased towards this one because I just recently listened to Ian McKellen's audiobook narration of the Odyssey, and I loved it because it was like Gandalf reading me a bedtime story. <laughs> we have, but, we but have for like, such different amazing. hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would personally, that is my favorite way to spend 13 hours about to fall asleep. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's really, really good, and I encourage everyone to listen to it. But one part in particular st- stuck out to me. Um, and it was, uh, this is very short, almost a throwaway scene where um, Odysseus makes it back home to Ithaca. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but he has to enter in disguise because he's going to do a surprise attack on all the suitors who have been trying to marry his wife slash kill his son while he's been gone. And as he walks through the city in this disguise, nobody, not even his lifelong friends, recognize him. But an old dog recognizes him immediately, and Odysseus recognizes him as well, because it was Argos, which was his beloved puppy that he had to leave behind when he went to war years before. And they're both, like, overcome with emotion. And it's it's really sweet, but it's also a super strange scene, as you'll see. I'll read you this quote. A dog that had been lying asleep raised his head and pricked up his ears. This was Argos, whom Odysseus had bred before setting out to Troy. In the old days, he used to be taken out by the young men when they went hunting. But now that his master was gone, he was lying neglected on the heaps of mule and cow dung <laughs> that, oh. that lay in front of the stable doors. And he was full of fleas. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> that sounds, did you text that to me? Recently? Yeah, I did. <laughs> okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, you, you texted that quote to me, just non sequitur, with just the caption mood. And I was like, something's going on with Noah. <laughs> yeah. but I, okay. I think I also texted you the next part, too, which was uh, as, soon as, he, as soon as he saw a Odysseus standing there, he dropped his ears and wagged his tail, but he could not get close up to his master. When Odysseus saw the dog, he dashed a tear from his eyes and said, What a noble hound is that over yonder on the manure heap? His build is splendid. And I texted you that, but I wrote goals. Hashtag goals. Yeah. His build is splendid. Quite a roller coaster. Um, and then the friend who... But remind, just a reminder, the friend, his lifelong friend who did not recognize Odysseus said, this dog belonged to him who has died in a far country. If he were that, if he were what he was when Odysseus left for Troy, he would soon show you what he could do. There was not a wild beast in the forest that could get away from him when he was once on its tracks, but now he has fallen on evil times for his master is dead and gone. And it's just so sad because Odysseus yeah. can't break cover to go embrace his like best friend, this dog. And the dog is so old, it can't really move over to see him. And Odysseus has to leave so that he can save his family. And Argos is so excited to have seen him that he dies right there on the big mound of shit it's a very strange scene that's the real greek tragedy right there (laughs) (laughs) i mean odysseus was gone for 20 years yeah that's an old dog actually yeah that's crazy Oh, he was just... Well, he, he was, was holding on. Yeah, like yeah. he was waiting. That, oh, now I'm even more sad. And no, plus, I mean, man. it's pretty prime real estate on top of that pile of shit. Like, <laughs> I mean, you're not Hashtag just going to give that up. <laughs> Fair enough. So I have one quick thing just on... You had the first kind of... The oldest mention of a dog. I have the first mention of the word pooch. Oh. Uh, which I associate strongly with dogs. Um, and so it's kind of an unknown origin, although the Oxford English Dictionary thinks that it's actually from the German term putzi, which they, they say is a term of endearment. And so people may have said that to each other, and then maybe someone used it as a nickname uh. for a dog. The proper name pooch 
was a dog in the United States in 1906. Although the owner and everything else about it, similar to, I guess, this earliest dog, is also unknown. So all that we know is there was a dog named Pooch in 1906. <laughs> and then by 1908, it had been used in several pieces of literature as just like, hey, Pooch, come over here, like a name for a dog. That's interesting. That's yeah. pretty cute. Uh, I, there was another interesting thing really quickly that I uh, I saw as I was reading about um, sort of the Greeks and their relationship to dogs is, you know how like sometimes it, when dogs are depicted, you'll see them with a spiked collar. Mm-hmm. Well, the, re- the Greeks invented that. And the reason was that they would have them uh, guarding sheep. And if any wolves came up and tried to attack the dogs, they would go for the neck and they would hurt themselves on the nails. And then they would learn never to do it again. Ooh. So the dogs would be protected. And so that's where like the spiked dog collar comes from. That's so smart. Huh. Never would have guessed that. That's pretty cool. So I know I'm doing the quiz at the end of this episode, but if you want a little pre-quiz before the big quiz. Pre-quiz! The, oh, my God. <laughs> it's just a, just a thing now. Like, I introduce something, and then you both just shout it back at me. Pre-quiz! <laughs> okay. Wait, did you say pre-quiz? I was going to say, introduce something. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> stretch, but... <laughs> so this quiz is based around onomatopoeia, specifically uh, the sounds that dogs are said to make in other languages. So in English, we say that a dog goes woof-woof or rough or bark um but i'm going to say the equivalent of that term in other languages and you guys have to guess which language it comes from okay sound good sounds mm-hmm. good all yeah. right so all right so our first one gov i really have, I have no idea any of your guesses gov 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 i don't know gov 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 no, gov, no gov, guesses gov. like nope. raskolnikov oh gov, okay gov. so it's like a russian yes <laughs> okay okay <laughs> yep that's how they Say that in Russia. Uh, <laughs> like, next, <"Gov,"> like <laughs> Raskolnikov. <laughs> <laughs> That's why his name was that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, the next one. Wow. I don't know if this is right. German, but German is Val Val. German's not included here, but okay. I will take your word for it. Hmm. Um, so you say like wow, wow. So yes, I think wow is more. Yes. Th- that vowel wow. intonation sounds Eastern. Yeah. Um, Maybe like is Japanese it, or Korean. Yeah, Korean. It is French. Oh. oh. Wow. <laughs> Um, another one that I like a lot is bluff. <laughs> bluff. <laughs> uh, that's got to be like Sweden or something, or, K- or like Scottish. Danish. Close. It's Dutch. Dutch. Oh. Well, yes. okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll do two more. Sure. Bow. Um. Jeez, uh, Italian. I've yeah. Been... Oh, exactly. nice. <laughs> wow, that's okay. exactly it. Nice. All right, and the last one is going to be Vaf. Hungry, is it? Is it Voth? Voth? Say it again. Voth. Is that is Voth? that northern Spain? Is that like Catalan? Very specific, but no. Okay. Because <laughs> I thought like we would just say like Vaz, but it's like Voth Voth. I'm from uh, Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they Barcelona. Would, no, the, dogs don't make any sound in Catalan. <laughs> <laughs> So this week I learned that the Iditarod Trail, nowadays most associated with the annual long-distance sled dog race, was once the route of a dog sled race with much higher stakes, namely saving a remote Alaskan village from a diphtheria outbreak. So I'm talking about the Great Race of Mercy, or the Serum Run of 1925, and it's honestly a pretty remarkable story involving some exceptionally good boys. So to set the scene... Nome, December 1924. It's a small town in northwestern Alaska, and it mostly has an Alaskan native population. Uh, So the local and 
only doctor for miles around, basically. Uh, Curtis Welch, he starts seeing uh, small kids come in with what he initially diagnoses as sore throat or tonsillitis, um, which initially isn't that big a deal. But then over ensuing weeks, more kids get sick and actually some start passing away. By mid-January, he managed to complete an autopsy of one of the kids who had passed and realized that what he was dealing with was not tonsillitis, but actually diphtheria, which is really, really bad. It's a highly contagious disease. Um, It transmits through airborne particulates and also surface contamination. Um, And according to the CDC, even with treatment, one in 10 people will die from it. And without, half of people die. And kids are more likely to pass away from it as well. So Thanks. it's already a very bad situation. Uh, and it was made even worse by the fact that the only antitoxin that he had left um, was expired. And because it was the middle of winter in remote Alaska, there wasn't a, a quick and easy way of getting any more. Um, yeah, so without antitoxin, he knew that the disease would spread really quickly among not only Nome, but also the 10,000 people spread around surrounding communities. And there was actually precedence for this concern um, in that in a few years prior, a Spanish flu had actually hit the area and wiped out about half of the native population of Nome. Um, and then in total, 8% of the native population of Alaska. Wow. Yeah. So it was a very dire, very highly concerning situation. Um, and basically, Curtis Welch uh, sent a telegram to other major towns in Alaska to warn them that this was happening. Um, and then also one to the U.S. Public Health Service in Washington, D.C., pleading for assistance. So Nome's Board of Health had an obvious crisis on their hands and basically had to figure out, number one, where are they going to find antitoxin to treat these patients? And number two, how on earth are they going to get it to their town? So in terms of locating antitoxin, uh, there was enough serum to treat at least 30 people in a hospital in Anchorage. So that would be enough to curtail the outbreak and keep it from spreading until more serum could be acquired from the mainland U.S. Um, So that was at least located and packed into an aluminum cylinder. But the only problem there was that it could only be shipped as far as Nanana, uh, which is a town in eastern Alaska that's still hundreds of miles from Nome. The next decision to be made was to figure out, okay, we have this serum. We can get it as far as uh, Nananana. How are we going to get it from there to Nome? I know it's a funny day, (laughs) but bear with me. So as I mentioned, this was taking place in January. So it was the middle of winter. No ships were sailing. No trains were running. And although they were briefly considered, at the time, biplanes were not really technically um, designed to fly well in Alaskan winter gales and also deeply sub-zero temperatures. So they settled on a dog sled relay um, in which the first team of relayers would transport the serum from uh, Nanana to another town called Nulado. And then another uh, relay would arrive in Nulado and then take it from Nulado to Nome. So Mm. it's kind of like Mm. three stops in total. And this was chosen because actually dog sleds were not an uncommon mode of transport in Alaska at the time. That's actually how they delivered the mail to some communities. Um, but even still, the task at hand would push the limits of what had been previously ever accomplished in a dog sled relay. So to give you an idea of what they were up against, the route from Nulato to Nome was 674 miles across the barren Alaskan interior. With no foliage or geographical features to block the gale force winds or blizzards, at that time of year as well, uh, the wind chill was in the range of minus 40 to minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And the trip also included a 42-mile trek across shifting ice flows in the Bering Sea. Wow. And of course, it was the coldest winter in 20 years because, of course, all the other stuff was (laughs) Can't be easy. Yes. It wouldn't, you wouldn't be telling the story if it wasn't the hardest one ever. Exactly. <laughs> and to further set the stage, the serum would only be good for six days in transit, and a typical oh, trip yeah. from Nulato to Nome back then took 30 days, with oh, the previous record God. being nine days. <laughs> this was a Hail Mary pass to end all Hail Mary passes. So to try and beat these 
pretty much unbeatable odds. Uh, they assembled a team of the best sled dogs and drivers in Alaska. So in total, 20 mushers and 150 dogs. And on January 27th, they began this highly improbable mission that had literally thousands of lives depending on wow. it. So a few kind of exemplary anecdotes from the journey just to um, give you an idea of their grueling experiences that these mushers and their dogs faced. So uh, one of the mushers uh, was a guy named Leonard Sapala, and he was actually a really legendary athlete who won the All-Alaska Sweepstakes multiple times um, and also introduced the breed of Siberian Huskies to the United States. Hmm. Oh, wow. um, Where are they from? Siberia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I presume. <laughs> Tijuana, Mexico. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So he and his lead dog, Togo, were actually originally assigned uh, the entire second leg of the trip. So they had to basically do a round trip from Nome to Nulato, and then with a serum from Nulato back to Nome. Um, but as the first leg of the trip was happening, the outbreak continued to spread and worsen, and concerns increased. And basically, they're like, all right, let's just kind of change this plan, send out more mushers, more relayers to try and then get the second leg of the trip to go more quickly. The only problem was that he was already in transit to Nulato from Nome as these uh. decisions were made. So rather than him picking up the serum in Nulato, um, instead another musher, Henry Ivanov, and his team picked it up. And on their way to Nome to then presumably hand off the serum to uh, Leonard Sapala, they first got into a skirmish with a reindeer, somehow. <laughs> got out of that. Skirmish. But then actually ran into Sapala while he was still heading to Nulato, not knowing that he was supposed to accept the serum from another relayer. And literally, Henry Ivanov had to get off his sled and chase after him, shouting, the serum, the serum, I have it here, come back! And then hand it off to him so he could then turn around and take it back to Nome. <laughs> oh, wow. So that was an interesting story from that. Um, but then also the final relayer um, of the entire trip uh, was Gunnar Kassen. He actually traveled the last 50 miles of the trip. Uh, so he basically dropped off the serum in Nome. And his leg uh, was completed in high winds and visibility so poor that he sometimes couldn't even see the dogs tethered closest to him wow. on the sled. Um, at one point, the winds were so strong, they actually flipped his sled over and sent the serum <laughs> flying. And he got severe frostbite trying to dig it out of the snow and get it back, which he did thankfully recover wow. it. Wow. Um, but because he couldn't see, he relied very heavily on his lead dog to guide the Reindeer. way. Sorry. <laughs> Rudolph. <laughs> he did not have a glowing nose, but you might know this dog's name. Balto! Yes, exactly. So this was Balto. So all in all, this highly improbable, miraculous trip essentially was completed in 127 and a half hours. So 5.3 days. Wow. They just made it. Literally just made it. And also broke the world record for a dog relay at the time, of <laughs> course. So at the time that they arrived, there were 28 patients, just enough for the 30 um, units of serum that they had with them. And also not a single ampule was broken over the course of the trip. So it was like by the skin of their teeth <laughs> that this worked out. And it's truly, truly amazing to consider. Um, so deservedly, a lot of accolades were given to the drivers and their teams. Uh, all the drivers got letters of commendation from President Coolidge. Balto got the key to the city of Los Angeles. And as any New Yorkers might know, a statue of his likeness in Central Park. And Leonard Sapala, the musher who traveled the longest distance, is still honored today at the Iditarod with an honorary position and an award in his name. So I looked into his legacy a little bit further, um, and he actually was known for giving a few interviews after the fact, expressing some frustration um, at all of the attention that Balto got, even though he felt that his lead dog, Togo, <laughs> put in more work. But regardless, I'd still say they're all pretty good boys. They're all good so, boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know that uh, Balto was, uh, after he died, was stuffed by uh, like a taxidermist and then donated to the Cleveland, uh, I guess, 
I want to say Museum of Natural History, but some museum in Cleveland. No kidding. Yeah, yeah but um, related to that, but just bear with me on how it's related to that. <laughs> um, do you know how many degrees of separation Balto uh, and Kevin Spacey are separated by? What are we counting? Sorry, as a sorry. Degree? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and do you mean Kevin Bacon? I mean Kevin Bacon. <laughs> um, uh, so um, I'm just going to do this. Did you know that Balto and Kevin Bacon have only one degree of separation? And it's because hmm. Kevin Bacon was the voice of Balto in the 1995 animated oh, film Balto. Oh, yeah. Now, I bring that up mainly because while we know the truth is that uh, Balto's body was stuffed and is actually on display, sort of an educational thing about this story in some Cleveland museum, uh, that movie has two sequels. <laughs> And in neither oh, of them no. <laughs> do they reflect the actual story. Because the original Balto movie is all about this, you know, traveling to get the diphtheria toxin, uh, antitoxin to know him on time. Um, Which was roughly the, true. Yeah. But, yeah. The, but the second two are just about like basically like sort of family adventures like Balto and his children going off and doing things. Like the second one is basically, I think Balto was part wolf. Uh, it was like a wolf dog. Which, which sort of is hybrid. an animation um, kind of like, that was part of the story they made for the movie that oh, is not true in real right life. okay yeah. so anyway he was in this second in balto 2 he has a daughter and the daughter is like embarrassed by her like wolf heritage <laughs> so she runs off into the wilderness and balto has to chase her and at some point she has a conversation with like a wise old mouse in a cave who's like <laughs> <laughs> our heritage okay. or it's like something like our heritage is not what we are but like where we start or something like some sort of like pseudo wisdom about <laughs> that and then they meet like a pack of wolves who the, there's this um like some sort of uh, prophecy amongst the wolves that like she who does not <laughs> she who believes she is a wolf but does not know will lead us or something and then it ends up spoiler <laughs> so, like, hyper specific <laughs> yeah yeah exactly okay. something they're like bashing you over the head with it it turns out Balto's daughter is gonna be the leader of this wolf pack and like lead them to the new land where there are more I don't know bison or whatever wow. um but yeah that they they strongly departed from history for the for Wait, the so, sequels. So the premise of the movie is that his daughter like is ashamed of her part wolf heri- heritage mm-hmm. doesn't talk about it. Yeah. So there's a she wolf in the closet. <laughs> what? It's a Shakira song. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah. There's I did not know that. She wolf in the closet. <laughs> Anyways. Is that that song? Yeah. It's like da da da. Yeah. <laughs> I think like he but like there's like, a part of like I should have the lyrics but like like, yeah, let her out and breathe. And it's like, <sighs> okay. <laughs> All right, guys, it's time for the quiz. As the old adage goes, ahead of every great human is a good boy, probably on a leash. So this week's quiz is all about man's best friend, but more specifically, celebrities' best friends. So I'll tell you about the pooches and a little bit about their owners, and then you guys have to guess the star. Question one. What singer-songwriter, distinguished as a history-making EGOT holder and one of the six voice options for Google Assistant, had a bulldog lovingly named Buddy? Well, the only... I can only really think of two EGOT holders, and that's John Legend and Whoopi Goldberg. Mm. Uh, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda has one. Oh, he does? Okay. I'm pretty sure he just really? got one but last year. S- does he, does singer-songwriter apply to Lin-Manuel Miranda or Whoopi Goldberg? I don't think I so. I don't think so either. James, I mean, Earl, might, James but... Earl Jones has one? Really? I, I wouldn't call him that, I think... Though. Of the ones we have, I think John Legend is probably the the best to go singer songwriter. Yes, Putty is super cute. So is he? Chrissy Teigen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, you want to discuss John, John Legend? Legend? John sure. Legend. Correct. Nice. Yeah. All right, all right. 
So putty. Everyone a high five right now. <laughs> there <Yeah>. you go. <laughs> so Putty was a bulldog uh, who unfortunately passed away last year, but Aww. John and Chrissy actually got him in their first year of dating. Um, so he kind of stuck through with them for a long time. Um, but yeah, he's also one of six voices for Google Assistant, which Ooh, that's great. is pretty fantastic. I kind of want Google Assistant now. All right, question two. What rapper, known for hits such as In the Club and Candy Shop, has a miniature schnauzer named Oprah Winfrey, that's spelled W-I-N-F-R-E-E, despite a six-year feud with the pup's namesake? Wow. The feud's over so, now. Wait, so you said the two songs were Candy, candy Shop. Shop? Well, it's 50 Cent, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah, it's 50 Cent. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So actually, my favorite part um, of this bit of trivia is that I actually found out that Oprah Winfrey, the dog, uh, had a Twitter account that oh. still exists, but stopped being active in 2012. So you picture 50 Cent as like, you know, he's a pretty tough guy, right? But then these are a sampling of the tweets uh, from Oprah Winfrey. My dad, 50 Cent, is putting out some hot music over the next week. <laughs> Makes me want to go find the nearest fire hydrant. <laughs> Dad is heading to Europe tonight. She makes her want to <laughs> pee. I guess. He's so excited. <laughs> Dad is heading to Europe tonight. I am so having a party while he's gone. Woof, woof. <laughs> <laughs> Who let the dogs out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I just thought it was kind of fun. That Anyways. is fun. Question three. What actor and owner of two bulldogs named Matzo Ball and Meatball, actually the latter of which served as the best man at his wedding, uh, so this actor, he uses oddly consistent character names across his films, with the majority of his characters' names, so the character that he plays, ending in Y, and the lead female characters having first and last names that start with V. So it's like a very consistent motif across his films. So he's a very lonely guy if his best man was a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's man's best man. <laughs> there we go. Um, he's probably an Italian actor. He's playing a lot of Tonys. Like Polly, Polly, Mikey, is that kind of thing? Billy, Benny. Um, I oh man, you, I I couldn't even begin to guess. I can give you some of the bulldogs. the names from the films. Okay, please. Help. Okay, so I'll start with the love interest names, and then if you want to hear his names, I'll do sure. those next. But first, the love interest names. Uh, so some are Veronica Vaughn, Virginia Venet, Vicky Valencourt. Vanessa, is, Valerie Varen. Um, we got some Ben Stilleriness here. You're on your or close. Adam Sandler. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Precisely. Yeah. And then That's his character's it. names were Billy, Sunny, Whitey, Tommy, Happy, Happy Gilmore, of course, mm-hmm. and Lenny. So yeah, oh. Adam Sandler. So what was in Fifty First Dates? What was Drew Barrymore? Uh, shit, I think that movie was not on this list, or at least not the one I was looking at. I can hmm. go back and check. But not not all of his movies follow this scheme, uh. but like a lot of them do. And I couldn't find any reason for it either. Like I didn't, I couldn't find any interviews of people being like, hey, why do you do this? And it's a mystery. Question four. What pop singer, known for her four octave vocal range and being the first solo artist to hold the top three spots on the Billboard Hot 100 simultaneously, actually this year, has nine dogs um, that's Ariana Grande. Yes, that it is. Her dog's names are Fox, Pignoli, Ophelia, Toulouse, Coco, Sirius, Cinnamon, Strauss, and Lafayette. And I assume they just all were acquired to teach her something different. Like, thank you, next. I don't know. We're going to take that joke <laughs> okay. out. That wasn't good. Like, one taught me this, one taught me that. Okay, fine. Yeah, but uh, with the singles Thank You, Next, Seven Rings, and Break Up With Your Girlfriend, I'm Bored, uh, Grande became <laughs> the first solo artist to hold those three spots uh, on the Hot 100 simultaneously, and the second musical act to do this ever after the Beatles in 1964. Oh. So pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah. Weird tag on trivia to that. She was part of a really big thing. Uh, the first artist to hold the number one and two spots since the Beatles, I think, was in like 2013. 
and it was Iggy Azalea. Oh, wow. Because um, oh. she had Fancy and then that 99 Problem song with Ariana Grande. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. And then we never heard from her again. And then she's luckily gone and forever. Then, yeah, she said some terrible things, and yeah. But huh. yeah, but Ariana's been, she's been right at the cusp of greatness this whole time. Yeah. And Nine Dogs, also pretty great. <laughs> Question five. Who has claimed in multiple interviews that her Siberian husky, Balto, mm. is actually a wolf? Uh, he's not, and this is an admittedly mild example of her tendency to talk things up, a tendency that got her in big trouble and also put her at the center of a documentary. Oh, Ooh. is this? I know it. It's, um, give me a sec. It's Elizabeth Holmes. Yes. Oh, God, yeah. Fairness. <laughs> yes. And soon to be felon. Yes. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, she just claimed in many interviews that her dog was a wolf because, sure, why not? <laughs> Her overinflating things? I can't imagine it. Um, My favorite thing is that he was known for peeing and pooping all over Theranos' headquarters, including during meetings with investors. Maybe maybe he probably works for the SEC. (laughs) (laughs) Question six. Uh, Which actress and another EGOT holder, uh, known for shaping American fashion in the 60s through a collaboration and friendship with uh, Hubert de Givenchy, and later in life um, as a UNICEF goodwill ambassador, also had a Yorkie named Mr. Famous? Yeah, wow. I've got got nothing on that. Is it Whoopi Goldberg? Nope. (laughs) I don't Uh, know any other EGOT. A fashionista EGOT? Like, she had a fashion line? She didn't have a fashion line, but she... She featured very prominently in films at the time and sort of like... In the 60s? Yes, and like changed the course of fashion. Is it um, Audrey Hepburn? Yes. Ah, <laughs> she has an EGOT. Yeah, I actually didn't know that um, until I researched this fact. I had but no idea. She's, wow. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. And she also had a baby deer named Ip. Ip? Ip. Ip. I-P. That's yeah. pie spelled backwards. <laughs> no, it's just pie. No. <laughs> or it's just oh, it is. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant P-I-E. Like no, pie. I never mean that pie. I know, I should have guessed. <laughs> Question seven. What artist loved his little wiener dog, Lump, so much? <laughs> <laughs> so much did not laugh at there. <laughs> it was an artist who loved I his should... wiener, Lump. Just... <laughs> his wiener, Lump. I should have like purposefully included a pause in there. My mistake. Well, yeah, you should, you should include a pause. It's all about dogs. Hey. <laughs> so what artist loved his little dog, Lump, so much that he painted him into 15 of his series of 44 studies of Velasquez's Las Meninas? So it's just probably somebody Spanish, but Lump is not a Spanish name, <laughs> and that's was El Lump, <laughs> El Lump. <laughs> um, I feel like Picasso. I feel like he would have a wiener dog. I, but I feel like I would remember it too. That's true. Um, I, I feel, but like, I feel like I do feel like if he were to paint a wiener dog and it has like the really stretched out proportions, he would just think he was painting a regular dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this dog is perfect for my style of art. <laughs> Dolly was painting them in the melting clocks. Yeah, <laughs> persistence of memory. Um, I yeah, Dolly go... preferred basset hounds because they're so droopy. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to go Rivera, like Diego Rivera. Okay, Diego Rivera. So it was Picasso. Oh, I always do this. I torpedo the smart person. All right. So Picasso actually had a couple of pets, um, including a large boxer called Jan and a goat named Esmeralda. But by many accounts, Lump, or actually it might have been Loomp, um, (laughs) the dog's name (laughs) means rascal in German. So I assume that's the more German way of saying it. His wiener rascal? (laughs) (laughs) If I'd known it was a German name, (laughs) I would have been more inclined to pick Picasso. Then he would have known. I bet that Dolly had a sheep named Dolly. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) Or two. Um, <laughs> or two. 
But yes, but by many accounts, uh, Loomp was his favorite of his pets. Uh, he was said to be the only one he'd actually pick up and carry around, and also the only companion he'd allowed to have in the studio with him. That includes, like, his children. Just no one was allowed in the studio but him and Loomp. Um, and actually, it also, by kind of a funny story, it appeared to be puppy love at first sight as well, when the dog's previous owner, photographer David Douglas Duncan, brought the dog to Picasso's residence uh, one day for lunch. Uh, and Picasso actually asked Duncan if the dog ever had a plate of his own to eat off of, and when Duncan said, no, it's a dog. Why does my dog need his own plate? Picasso actually picked up a paintbrush and painted a likeness of the dog on his own plate and then gifted it to Duncan being like, here you go. Here's a plate for your dog. And that plate's now valued between $20,000 and $90,000. Wow. So there you go. God. Fancy flatware. All right. And finally, question eight. What musician once had a televised performance in which he serenaded one of his hit songs to a basset hound named Sherlock? To clarify, it wasn't actually his dog. It was just a dog named Sherlock. <laughs> okay, the dog's name is Sherlock. It's a basset hound. Okay, so I'm, I'm feeling there's some kind of um, there's, there's got to be some really good reason, like a mystery song. Is there is there any connection of the name Sherlock or the basset hound to this person? The basset hound. The yes. basset hound aspect of it. Yeah. Well, it's connected to the song that was performed. Oh, is it Elvis? Oh, ain't no. Oh, but a hound dog. dog. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> it was Elvis works. Presley. Uh, he did a performance on the Steve Allen Show in 1956. And basically the premise of this performance was that the showrunner uh, was seeking to sort of neuter, one might say, Elvis's performance to be a little more family friendly. So this was during the time when his controversial gyrations on stage earned him the nickname Elvis the Pelvis. Um, <laughs> so to try and tone this down, uh, he was dressed up in a full tuxedo and relegated to crooning hound dog at an actual top hat and bow tie clad basset hound on a pedestal. <laughs> uh, as Elvis himself said afterwards, it was the most ridiculous appearance I ever did and I regret ever doing it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard today or you have any questions or other kind of tangential facts that you want to let us know about, we'd love to hear them. You can reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at Pod, also on Facebook at Podcast, and individually we're on social media uh i'm at underscore em costa noah at arcs and sciences and rob at whiteboard rob and for bonus content and related trivia that didn't make it into the episode you can mosey on over to our episodes page at faxmachinepodcast.com also we'd really appreciate if you guys like what you hear if you could leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts that would be really awesome Fax Machine is hosted and written by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, and Emily Costa, and edited by Noah Guyberson. Production and theme music are by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.